Uh, okay, well, we are actually changing sermon series today. We finished up our series on the Gospel of John last week, and today we're diving into four weeks on the book of Titus. Titus is a small book. It's a letter, actually, from the Apostle Paul, not to a church like many of his epistles were, but to a person. In fact, there's uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We lump together and call them the pastoral epistles because it's really a letter from one pastor to another encouraging these two young men on how to build up God's church. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to Titus. I'm going to uh, just be reading the first four verses. This is what we're going to dig into today. So pay now attention to God's Word. Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching which, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the Word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for Your Word. We're, in thank, we're thankful for the way that You used Paul, the words that he sent to his young friend Timothy, the way that You worked through these men to build Your church, the way that You're working through Your Scriptures now to continue building Your church. Lord, we pray that we would come under the authority of Your Word this morning, that You would soften us you would open our ears, clear our eyes, that we might see you more clearly, that we might see Jesus even in these words, and that in seeing him, we might know him and love him. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, my guess is kind of throughout this uh, particular COVID season, you've probably heard these words work-life balance a lot. It's not a new term. But I think usually when you are forced to slow down and stop doing one thing in your life, it can kind of highlight the fact that maybe you've been too obsessed with that thing. So many of us maybe now are kind of figuring out, oh yeah, I was working like crazy, and now that I've been forced to sit at home and do nothing, I've actually seen how out of balance my life was. Maybe now how out of balance my life is, right? So oftentimes, we will want to balance things so that we're kind of in the right place. All right, hold that thought for just a second. We're going to come back to it. So Titus, this letter from Paul to Titus, a pastor who's in Crete, he's planting a church in Crete, which is an island right off the coast of Greece. And if you've ever seen pictures of Crete, it's probably not a really bad place to plant a church. It looks pretty nice. But in Crete, in the first century, they are having some of the same issues that, guess what, we have planting a church probably about the same age here in our time and place. They are having challenges that are coming at them from two sides. And so they've got one group of people that are saying things like this, you know, Jesus is great and all, and all this talk about grace and everything, that's fine and dandy, let's keep that. 
but let's add to it all of that stuff that God said we needed to do uh, back in the Old Testament. Let's add to it all of the requirements that our rabbis have made up outside of the Bible. Let's add to it a long list of things that we need to do to make us right with God. Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. We would call that the sin of legalism or moralism, the idea that what I do earns God's favor. He likes me, he loves me, he accepts me because of this list of boxes that I've checked off for him. But they were also getting attacked on the other side from folks who were saying, you know what, this is great, all of this talk about grace. Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. He set us free from the requirements of the law. So guess what? Now we get to do whatever we want. We get to be whoever we want to be. God doesn't care how we act. He doesn't care how we live. We get to live our lives however we want. We'd call that the sin of licentiousness or libertinism. The idea that because Jesus has actually done it for us, we don't actually have to act in a godly way at all. Titus, this young pastor, or a pastor of a young church in Crete, is getting both of those messages coming into his church. And here's where I want you to come back to that balance idea. The temptation for them was the same temptation that it is for us, and it's this, is that we think oftentimes the way to counteract one error is by just adding a little bit of the other. You see what I'm saying? If you've got a libertine problem, If you're not doing the things you're supposed to do, then really the answer is to just throw in a little bit of legalism there, hoping that it might balance the scales out. If you've got a legalism problem, then what we want to do is just throw in a little libertinism, a little licentiousness in order to balance the scales out, and that's how we get to the proper place. But actually, that's going to leave us in a worse place because, get this, those two opposite-seeming errors actually stem from the same thing. They are both a misunderstanding of the gospel message, a misunderstanding of the message that Jesus has done what we could never do on our own, and therefore, we are called to follow Him wholly and completely in our lives. That's the message that actually permeates the entire book of Titus. It's the thread that runs through this whole letter. It's the thing that we're going to see come up over and over, and when we see Paul talk about uh, libertinism, he's going to combat it with the gospel, and when we see Paul talk about legalism, he's going to combat it with the same thing, the gospel. And in fact, we see it here even in these first four verses in this introduction, this gospel thread that runs through everything. In fact, we see that this gospel shape affects Paul's identity, the way that he identifies himself, the way that he talks about his purpose, even for writing and the purpose in ministry, the foundation that he stands on, and even his address to Timothy himself. So let's look at that. Let's start at the very beginning where Paul starts. If you're new to the Bible, this may come as a surprise to you. It's a letter with a signature at the very beginning. But that's the way actually it worked in the first century. If you were writing a letter, instead of signing your name at the end, you would sign your name at the beginning so that the people knew right from the start who was writing it. And Paul not only identifies himself by his name, but he starts to identify himself even further. further, And the very first word from his pen is this word servant. Paul, a servant. That's an important word actually in the Bible. It's the Greek word doulos, and it meant servant or even slave. Maybe the Bible in front of you translates it slave. 
And that's the way it was. It was a bondservant, a person who belonged to another, to a family. Now, sometimes it can get a little confusing because slavery in the first century was a little different than slavery in the 19th century that we're used to talking about most. Because in the first century, slaves could oftentimes hold political office or they could own property. They could have a social standing of a sort. In fact, sometimes it was more even economically expedient to sell yourself into slavery because that was the best thing for you and your family. But there is one thing that is constant about slavery. It is that you are owned by another. And so when Paul uses this word doulos, bondservant, slave, he is talking about being owned by another. And that word's really important in all of his writings in the New Testament. He mentions it multiple times, and the foundation he starts with in talking about what it means to be a servant is that we once were slaves to another. Paul says throughout his writings that Christians, before they were saved, were slaves to sin, that we were bound, chained to sin. Now, we're, we're Texans, we're Westerners, we're Americans, right? We like our freedom. We want to think of ourselves as always having that freedom, but theologically speaking, Spiritually speaking, what the Bible lays out is that before Jesus freed us, we were actually bound to sin. And in a couple of really important passages, Paul kind of lays out the implications of this. In Galatians chapter 4, he says, you were bound to sin, you were slaves to sin, but something amazing has happened in the way that Jesus has freed you. And the illustration he uses is of a home and of a father who's father over a whole household that includes bondservants. And in the Greek world, what would oftentimes happen is that a father of the household could adopt one of the slave's children, and when that child was adopted, they would actually become an heir and a child of the household. They would have all the rights of citizenship. They would have all the rights uh, of the heirs of the child. They would be just like any other child in that household. And what Paul is saying really clearly is you used to be slaves to sin, And Jesus has not only freed you, but He's adopted you into His family. That's the beautiful, beautiful doctrine of adoption that we see. But there's another interesting passage in Romans 6 where Paul talks about things similarly and has actually a little bit of a different ending. He starts again by saying, you are slaves to sin. You are bound, chained to sin and death. And Jesus has freed you, but He ends by saying this, you are now slaves to God. You are slaves to righteousness. That's actually the truth that's laid out all over the Bible, is that being rescued and freed from sin, we are relieved from the bondage from our former master. We were under an abusive and terrible master, but we have been made to belong to another. And this is a master that loves us, that desires our flourishing, that wants to shower His beauty and grace on us, that treats us like children but we are still bound to Him. In fact, Paul's not the only one that says this in the New Testament. Peter calls himself a slave. Jude does the same thing. James does the same thing. They talk about Christians as being slaves to God. And it's not just the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the same term used for God's people. Abraham is identified as the servant of God. Moses as the servant of God, Joshua, David, all of whom are called God's servants. Now, let me just pause and point out really quickly, do you see the gospel shape of this word? How it is neither the legalistic message 
nor the message of licentiousness or libertinism. You have been freed from not only sin and death, but the demands of earning God's favor, but you have been freed to belong to another. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the way that Paul identifies himself right out of the gate. But it's not just his identity. He is also saying that the gospel has shaped his entire purpose for ministry. If you look at actually the way that he continues in verse 1, he says this, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy and in establishing this church, establishing this church in Crete is for the sake of the faith of God's people, for their knowledge of the truth that builds them up in godliness. Do you hear all three of those things? Faith, knowledge, godly action. The gospel has to include all of those things because if we leave one of them out, we actually end up with a different message, a different gospel. When Joy and I were uh, recently married, I decided I wanted to cook dinner for us one time, um, and it must have been some sort of special occasion because I'm not really all that good at cooking, and for me to just decide, let me do this for you, probably meant it was some sort of special occasion, but I got all excited about it. I wanted to cook, and for some reason, I wanted to cook soup. Maybe it was kind of cold that day. So I kind of scoured the internet on great soup recipes, and I've always really loved um, potato soup. It just kind of feels like comfort food for me. So I looked for recipes for potato soup and um, kind of found this one recipe that ends up being the recipe for the potato soup that they serve to Congress, which sounds kind of weird. I don't, I don't know. There's, evidently, there's a special potato soup that you only get if you're a congressman. So I found the recipe. And I was pretty excited about it. And I looked you know, through all the ingredients, and I went to the store, and I prepared everything, and I got all the stuff that I needed. And one of the kind of secret ingredients in this soup recipe was the spice clove. Familiar with the spice clove? It's great, rich, pungent spice. And it called uh, for clove to be in the soup. It's kind of the thing that's going to make, you know, kick it up a notch, make it not just the regular potato soup, but this really exquisite, you know, Congress-worthy soup. Well, there's something about uh, spices, if you've ever cooked with spices in a soup, is that um, two, two big things that I didn't actually know kind of about, uh, about cloves that are very important to this story. And the first is that the recipe called for one whole clove. And if you've ever cooked in soup, you know that if you put a whole spice in a soup, it's going to soak it up and it's going to you know, add a lot of flavor, but it's only going to do so kind of in a subtle way. In fact, usually you take that whole spice out before you eat it. Well, I didn't really know this, and so I just purchased cloves, and they were on the shelf there. And it just so happened that this was ground clove. And because it's supposed to be a whole clove, and the whole clove is kind of supposed to, you know, disperse subtly that, that pungent flavor throughout the whole soup, you know, if you put the same amount of ground clove as you would a whole clove in the soup, it's automatically going to be much, much stronger. Because it's going everywhere, right? That's the first thing I didn't understand about cloves. The second thing I didn't really know about cloves was the size of a clove. And if you've ever seen a whole clove, it's about a centimeter big. It's this little kind of stalk with a little round, you know, kind of head on it. It's like smaller than a coffee bean. I thought a clove was more like the size of a golf ball. About 20 times the size of an actual clove. So thinking that I needed to put in as much 
ground clove as would equal a whole clove, and thinking that a whole clove was the size of a golf ball, I put in a lot of clove to this soup. Let's just say we didn't eat much of it. It was not good. Here's my point, is that when you focus exclusively on one thing and it fills up this much when it's supposed to fill up this much, you end up with a bad-tasting soup and the message of the gospel that gets changed as well. The same is true with faith and knowledge and action. Paul says, I'm here, my purpose is to increase in you your faith, your knowledge of the truth, and your godly activity. But you know, if we just take one of those things and we exclude the others, we can end up in a really bad place. Let's just think through that for a second. What happens if you only have faith and there's no knowledge and no godly activity? Well, what oftentimes happens is that you can lead to not only ignorance, but maybe even abuse. You've probably seen this with, with the popular faith healers, where people are told, just don't look behind the curtain. Don't worry about digging in to any of the Scriptures. Don't worry about if any of this makes sense. Just believe and trust me. And of course, if you add to that ungodly activity, if that person is a charlatan out for their own personal gain, then what you have is incredible abuse against the church in the name of faith. But the same thing can happen if you only focus on knowledge, right? If we only focus on knowledge in the exclusion of faith and godly action, then we end up with arrogance. We end up with an arrogant church who thinks, you know what, we know all of the right ways to do everything. And we've got all of our theological ducks in a row, and we've got all of our liturgical ducks in a row, and we've got all of our organizational ducks in a row. And if there's ever been somebody that you could look to to say, that's the right way to do it, then it's us. Well, that is oftentimes going to lead to a lack of faith and trust in God's leading, and of course, arrogance always leads to ungodliness. But what if it's only activity that you focus on? Well, now we're back to kind of our classic moralism, aren't we? It's all about the outward activity. It's all about the way that I look. It's all about the things that I do. And if that's void of real belief, if that's void of real truth, then we are simply putting on a show for everybody. But the gospel is all of those things. We are called to cling to the Lord by faith, to believe in Him only, and then to dig in and dive into this beautiful truth. Doctrine and theology then become for us not something that's dry and dead, but something that is wonderful and life-giving. They are a spring of life and water for us. And fed by that spring, we want to actually follow Jesus. We want to act in a way that's honoring and glorifying to Him. See, Paul's purpose is not to sprinkle in a little legalism for the licentious people or to sprinkle a little bit of, of licentiousness for the legalist folks. His purpose is to give them the gospel, the whole gospel, faith, knowledge, action, all together. There's Paul's identity. There's his purpose. How about the foundation on which he stands? Well, let's continue to read here because there's four really important words he brings up. He says this in uh, verse 2, which, uh, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and then skip down to the end of, church, of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul says, hope, promise, 
grace and peace are like the four kind of foundational stones upon which we're building our identity and our purpose. Hope for Christians has always been the sure assurance of what is to come. It's not just kind of a willy-nilly hope, well, gosh, I really hope that happens. Hope, biblically speaking, is actually a firm foundation, something we get to look forward to in belief that God is actually going to do what He said He's going to do, which leads us to that second thing, promise. Our hope can actually be founded on something because God has promised it. And did you see this? God actually promised it before the ages began. God promised this hope of, by the way, eternal life and glory with Him before even time began. How mind-blowing is that? Before actually humanity even fell into sin, God was already promising the, uh, the, uh, the redemption from that sin. That's crazy. And just in case uh, you were tempted to not believe God, Paul goes on and says, by the way, God never lies. <laughs> this promise that's made before the foundation of the world is given by one who never lies hope and promise, and then how does, he, how does He finish? Grace and peace. The beautiful foundation of our faith, the grace of Jesus, the unmerited favor that He has given us, not because of how we have worked for Him, but because how He has worked for us. And peace, that beautiful Hebrew word shalom that means the way that things are supposed to be the way that the world is supposed to work, the way it was in the beginning before the fall, and the way that we can hope it will be one day when God makes all things right, that He has made peace not only in all of the world, but peace actually between the Father and us by the blood of Christ, our Savior. So put these all together, and what do we have is the hope of eternal life and glory with God the hope of actually things being made right between our Father and us, and hope even for things being made right between human beings and all of creation. And that's all built on the promises that were given to us before time began by one who never lies. What an incredible foundation we have to stand on. And that's all been building, all been building up to his address here to Timothy. All of this is before we even get to dear Titus, not Timothy, but Titus. Dear Titus. And what does he say to Titus? Titus, my true child in the faith. Glorious words those are. You ever just thought how nice it would be to hear that from someone? My true son, my true daughter, my child whom I love the one whom I have given all things to, to hear that from a mentor or a parent, to hear it from the Apostle Paul, how wonderful would that be? There's a story that Jesus tells, one of His more famous parables. We usually call it the prodigal son. It's actually a story about two sons, and it goes kind of like this, is that a wealthy landowner and father had two sons. And the younger son told the father one day, he decided, you know, I'd rather have the inheritance that I'll get when you die. I'd rather have that now so that I can go and have a lot of fun with it. And the father, being the loving father that he was, gave it to him. And the son had decided that the best way for him to find happiness and joy in life was to basically go and do whatever he wanted in his life, to spend whatever the father had given him on drink and women and indulgences, however, 
He had kind of hitched his wagon to that libertine idea that the best way for me to flourish is for me to just be able to be completely unchained and untethered and unhindered and do whatever I want in my life. But guess what? It leads him, it leaves him completely empty. He ends alone, poor, destitute, with nothing. And he thinks to himself, I've got nothing else to lose. I might as well go back to my father and grovel before him and beg, and maybe, just maybe, he'll let me be one of his servants. Well, of course, as he's coming home in the story, the father sees him from far off, and he pulls up his robes, and he starts to run, and he meets his son halfway, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and he calls the servants in, and he says, this is my son. All that I have is his throw a party, kill the fatted calf, let's celebrate. My son is here and he's alive. But there's a second son, the older son, the older brother. And the older brother is in many ways just the opposite of the younger brother. The younger brother has kind of hitched his wagon to uh, throwing off any kind of of the boundaries in his life. The older brother has said, bring them on, that's the way that I'm gonna find joy and happiness. I'm going to work my fingers to the bone for my father, and that's how I'll earn his love. That's how I'll earn my place in this family. I'll obey all the rules. I'll do all the right things. I'll make it all happen, and because of my activity, I'll get what I want out of life. But guess what? When we find this older brother, he's not in the party having a good time. He's not in there rejoicing. He's actually standing outside the party, pouting with his arms crossed like this, frustrated that his dad is throwing a party for his younger brother. All of his activity, all of his work, all of his legalism has left him in the same place, empty, lonely, sad. But the father comes to him in the same way. He says, my son, all that I have is yours. Isn't it beautiful to see that the way way that the father comes to both of these sons, he doesn't come to the younger son and say, you know what you really need? is a little dose of that older brother. The way that you really kind of deal with this licentiousness in your life is let's throw a little legalism in there. No, he says what you need is to know that you're my son. And he doesn't come to the older brother and say, you know what you really need is just a little bit of that younger brother. You know, you need, you're you're too stiff. You need to loosen up a little bit. Let's throw a little of that licentiousness into your life. It'll balance out just fine. But that's not what he says. He says, my son, my true child, all that I have is yours. That's at the very heart of the gospel message, friends. It's the way that Paul addresses Timothy. It's the way that our Father addresses us. My child, my daughter, my son, the one whom I have made to belong to my family, all that I have is yours. This is the message we need to combat legalism in our own lives when our hearts desperately want to do, 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 do for God so that we think He might love us more. It's the message we need to fight libertinism in our lives when our hearts desperately want to just be unfettered and unchained to do whatever we want in our lives. It's the same message, the gospel message that says, you are my child. I have given all to you. Let's pray that God would enable us to believe that message even more today. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this wonderful introduction from the Apostle Paul 
to his ministry partner, Titus, for the beautiful foundation that is laid there for that young church. Lord, I pray that our young church would soak up that same message, that we would know our identity and our purpose, that we would know the foundation upon which we stand, and that we would live into our adoption as your sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, enable our hearts to cling to these things more tightly today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's take a couple of moments to reflect on these things. I'm going to ask the ushers also to come forward, and we'll pass uh, our offering baskets and take up our morning's tithes and offerings.